I don't know that many, many couples really think through what it's going to do to their, their relationship because you need your relationship changes to take care of a, a child, but you can't lose yourself because at the end of the day, this child's going to move away and you're going to be stuck with each other. So if you lose <laughs> yourself, then what's left at the end of it. And we, we knew that that was going to be important to us. So, um, yeah, it was rough. Like it's, it's hard. Welcome back to I'm the Villain. So today we're going to be talking about fatherhood with Richard, who is talking to us from Iowa. Um, And, you know, I'll just let Richard, I'll just let you give, you know, a quick intro to yourself, whatever you think our audience should know about you. Sure. Yes. It's a pleasure to be with you guys today and to be talking fatherhood and all the ups and downs and crazy that that entails. Uh, First time father. So um, definitely not a two, three, four kid family. Don't know how parents actually do that. Um, I all the props to them. So yeah, um, new dad, uh, relatively new dad. I spent my time doing marketing consulting. And then um, in my free time, I have been a, I like to say a recovering politician. I've never won an election, but I've run for office twice. And then now I, I spend the rest of my time serving as the Iowa chair of the Alzheimer's Association which is the national organization for, for Alzheimer's um, support and research. So um, it is a full life day to day. That's a lot of stuff. Wow. Wow. So, and, and you also had mentioned that, um, that you were queer, right? So do you, is your co-parent also a father? Yes. My husband is a wonderful father. Cool. Cool. And how did you adopt? We did. So we, we, yeah, she was born um, February of 2019. Our daughter was, um, we, we met her birth mother and um, wonderful, wonderful woman um, who gave us a tremendous gift. So um, it, it was that process in and of itself is a long process. I'm happy to go kind of down that that story. Yeah, well. I, I yeah, would be curious. I know be, nothing about it. <laughs> yeah, especially as I mean, I'm also like if I am going to be a father, I think it's going to be through adoption. Yeah. So yeah, I am very interested in this. So there's well. when you adopt, there's two ways you can do it. You can go through your state's uh, child protective services. You can become a foster parent and adopt that way. Um, we initially thought we'd go down that path, but the more we learned about um, that process and and some of some of the situations that those kids come from, we decided that wasn't right for us, just based on some of our own past traumas that um, we didn't feel like we could could help in that way. And so we went the private adoption route, um, which is where you find an agency or agencies to work with who then um, mothers typically come to that agency and they, they a, don't know what to do or B, they know they want to put their baby up for adoption. And the way that that process then works is you as the adoptive family put together what's called a profile. And it's basically a 16, 20 page book about your life, your jobs, your families, your hobbies, your pets. Um, your neighborhood, those kinds of things. And it's essentially the one, it's the only piece that a prospective uh, birth mother will see about you before she picks you. Um, for the most part, like if you, if any of your audience watched Friends, the sitcom, they show that um, Monica and Chandler sit down with Erica at, you know, at the end and they meet and then she picks them. That is very, very, very atypical. Um, we didn't have any contact. Really? Yeah, we had no contact with our daughter's daughter's birth mom until she selected us. Um, so it's very much a disconnected process. Um, 
least it was for us and the agencies that we we talked to and and interviewed and worked with. Um, and so what happens is we as the as the prospective parents get a limited or a very detailed medical history from from the birth mom, and then you have to decide at that point. Yes, this is a a, a mom I would be happy to adopt their baby. And if you say yes, then you get presented to that to that mother. If mom says yes, then you're a match. Like you, this is this is this is happening. Um, and so we had a situation in 2018 where we were selected by a birth mom um, who then um, had her baby and decided to keep her baby, um, which happens um, when you're going private adoption route where you're not doing surrogacy or or those kinds of things. That happens, and it's the the crappy part about adoption. Um, but then we were lucky four months later, another, another birth mom selected us and, and went through with the final adoption. So, um, it, it's a stressful process. It's expensive and that part sucks too. Um, but it was, you know, the only way we were going to be able to have, you know, a kid in our family. So mm-hmm. is there a, like a philosophical or like reason behind the sort of disconnect between the potential adoptive parents and the, and the mother, or is it like more logistic reasons? You know, it's probably both. Um, so our birth mom was in Arizona. We were in Iowa. So we could have done a FaceTime kind of thing. And we did that once she selected us. That's how we got to know her and ask her questions. Um, but it could be philosophical, too, because on some level, there's probably a you don't want, you know, the, the prospective parents to be all salesy and, you know, rosy. It's it's very black and white that way. It's it's you know she she gets these books in front of her and she gets to flip through them and and use that kind of as her basis for deciding. So it might be kind of both, honestly. Do you know if it's costly to adopt uh, like through the state process? So I can only speak to the state of Iowa, but typically it is not costly at all. And it's not costly because the state covers a lot of those costs. So if a kid is unfortunately in the child protective um, system, the number one goal is always reunification. Make do their best to, to to get counseling or treatment or whatever whatever caused the situation. They want to try and remedy remedy that situation for the benefit of the kid um, and you know for the for the parents as well. Um, if it comes down to the, the, the reunification is not going to happen, the state will bear the cost of obviously having the child in the foster parent's home, and the foster parent mm-hmm. gets you know money for food and clothes and that kind of thing. And then when it comes to the actual court proceedings, you as the adoptive family will need to, will need to pay your own attorney. The state will have their side. Um, and then once that kid, you know, if, it, if it does finalize, if the state does make the adoption final, that child typically is able to have state health insurance and state care until they turn 18. And so it's super less expensive from the adoptive side. Uh, mm-hmm. But... Um, there's also other other challenges that come along with that, depending on their trauma, whatever whatever happened. Um, so there's there's pluses and minuses to both. Neither is better or worse than the other. Hmm. And the you know you mentioned that it's kind of up to the birth mother. Do they have like the other you know parent like the father have any involvement at all? So um, yes, if if a the father wants to be involved. Um, or B, if they know who the father is. Mm -hmm. Uh, So in our situation, um, she did not know who the father was. And Mm -hmm. so um, it was her call. Got it. So it's mainly like you're putting 
your profile out there and she's kind of like, you know, go sifting through these profiles and then you like you knew very, very little about her before she matched with you. Yeah, we know as much as the hospital, as much as her what they call the intake document tells us. Um, so I, if I remember correctly with her, we knew a little bit about mom and like she filled out the form and had a little bit about mom and dad's medical history, um, any of her medical history that she knew or could remember. Um, and then, yeah, it's, it's yes, no, like, am I okay with this? Not with this. So like with some of the profiles we would turn down, for example, um, it was because the, the, the family had a medical history of, um, certain diseases or, or things that we just didn't feel comfortable taking on. Um, because we want to make sure that we're the right environment for that child. Right. Um, and so with, with her, there was nothing that, that made us even hesitate to say, to say we were open to, to her selecting us. Yeah. Cause like, obviously in the adoption space, there's this narrative of like, there's this bias and choice and like, you know, which kids are going to get chosen and which kids aren't, but it seems like it's actually more if the mom has the choice, it feels like maybe that would be less of a factor. Right? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know in in the private system that there's a lot of um, kids that don't. It sounds this is the worst way to say it, but kids that don't get picked. Um, mm-hmm. There were there were there were a lot that we said no to, um, mm-hmm. but I'm sure they had yeses too. You know, and it's just a matter of having the right um, perspective parents. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so like, if they you know, don't get picked in the private system, do they then go to Child Protective Services? No, I actually don't know the answer to that question. That would be my guess, would be what, okay. what happens to them in those situations. And then, then they would go to the foster system, would be my guess. Got it. It seems like if a child winds up in CPS, it's through some, like, yeah, through some, like, home domestic yeah. trouble, right? Yeah. Some, you know, they can be as bad as mom and dad have lost their jobs and don't have money for food. And so the kid's going hungry. So, you know, they're yeah. taken out and f- help them find a job. And like, then, then that's when reunification is really easy. But then there's the, also there's abuse, there's super neglect, you know, those kinds of things. And yeah, then the kid gets taken out. Right. And, and the reason that those kids, so, but I guess I'm thinking, I'm thinking about the input of like how a kid ends up like in a, a private adoption system versus, but it seems like, in your situation, the private um, agency was sort of brings in mothers that are pregnant or and are like anticipating wanting their baby to be adopted by someone. Yeah, else. most of the time on the private side, it is the birth mom is pregnant and, and she knows she's she wants to put up for adoption. We did see a few examples, a couple situations where um, it wasn't that case, but it's very, very rare that it's not a, uh, you know, soon to be born child. Wow. So interesting and complicated. Very complicated. <laughs> you know, there's legal nuances that we learned along the way. Um, you know, when, when do rights get terminated? Um, so for example, and this is a one, this is a wonderful thing. It added stress on the, the adoptive side, but so our daughter was born on a Tuesday. Um, we, uh, the, the, the adoption agency took, um, essentially possession of her right after her birth. They were in charge of her care. Um, but, and then they signed over that care to us for 72 hours. So we were, you know, we, we left the hospital with her, but essentially we were just caretakers. The adoptive, our, our agency was the one who was responsible for her. Her mother couldn't sign her rights, her actual rights away, um, for 72 hours, which gives her the window to make sure, is this okay with me? 
And while that was super stressful for us, it's the right thing for her, right? To make sure that, that, you know, you're not, that the system's not against these, these birth moms. Yeah. That makes sense. If you don't feel comfortable answering this question, but like how much, like how much did you two spend in total on this? That's a great question. Um, (laughs) And we've been open about it. Um, So because of the failed adoption that we did have um, in 2018, we lost, we lost some money on that um, because you spend money on lawyers and doctors, doctors visit, those kinds of things. Um, All in our total cost was about $60,000. 60,000. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. (laughs) Which is not, so it's like, that's, it's terrible. It's terrible. Yeah. It's such an interesting incentive because it's like, you know, people, it means that like only a certain class of people can participate in the private adoption sector. Um, and I wonder how that affects, like, you know, how that affects the type of person that is more likely to go, you know, the public route. Right. Does that mean that like, Typically, people that have less money go the public route. I don't know, but you know, it's, yeah, it's interesting. That, it's interesting, interesting. And, and I will say there's a there's a ton there are a ton of resources out there for grants and and I don't want to call them scholarships, but essentially that for families who who have the financial need who want to go the private way but can't find a way to you know, get that get those dollars. So so there are those opportunities out there. Um, but but I will say that that to your point, there there might be a disparity between who goes which path. Um, we do have some friends here in Iowa who, who are, are the same kind of income level, if not higher than us, who went the, the foster route. They felt it was the right path for them. Um, and so I think there, there's, there's probably anomalies on both sides. Um, but you're probably right. Um, it does skew one way. How much did they like ask you about yourself? Like in the sense of like, you know, uh, I feel like the this like you know whatever vetting system there is feels like it could so easily cuz like I have no idea if the things that I've heard are true about whether like you know is it hard to like you know get approved or whatever and like you know there from from what I have heard it can be like you know really difficult to go through the system and there's like all kinds of bias in in the system but at the same time it's sort of like well you're trying to like match kids with yeah. like people who will potentially be good parents, but like, how do you gauge that kind of thing? You know what I mean? Yeah. So when you go through, uh, the, the CPS system to become a foster parent, it's not like you sign a piece of paper and here's a kid for you to take care of for a week. Right. Yeah. yeah. Literally for us in the state of Iowa, it's a 10 week course, one night a week for like three hours. Um, because you have to learn about, um, a, the, all the legal stuff, what you're allowed to do, not do as a foster parent, but then B, how do you handle all the different situations you might find yourself in? Yeah. Um, and so there's that from the private side the, you don't go through that, but you do have what's called the home investigation. Um, and, and, uh, most States it's two visits, the state of Iowa, it's three visits, um, over the course of a, I feel like it was 12 weeks, if I remember correctly, where this investigator who's certified by the state comes in. And it was basically like two to three hours every visit, um, just sitting and having conversations with us. And she's taking notes the whole time. And it's not just like the questions were never tell me about your day. It's how are you going to discipline? How do you guys fight? How do you deal with conflict? How were you raised? Like it's very, it was almost, we joked at the end of it that it was kind of like counseling for us. Um, Some of these questions we had never, we had never thought about. 
Yeah. And so uh, it is not an easy process. Um, was I worried that she wouldn't approve us? No. Um, because I just know what kind of people we are, that the system is meant to protect the kids. And yes, there are failures. Um, but seeing the system, seeing the process, you know, from now my seat, it is not an easy job. Um, yeah. you know, I can't imagine what it's like for an investigator who goes in and, you know, that they're 50, 50 on, is this a good home or not? Like, how do you, I don't, that's, that's yeah, a, it's a big but, gamble. Yeah. I don't right. deal with that. <laughs> Yeah. And it's all like, it's funny because like when you describe it, it's almost like, hmm, like maybe every parent should get something like that. Yes. <laughs> right? Yes. Like have, a, have like have to think about like, oh, how do I resolve conflict? You know? Yes. I mean, they, they were super hard questions and they made us have conversations that we probably wouldn't have had otherwise. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I think it'd be good for every parent to go through things like that. Right. Like, so. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Yadre. So I'd love to get your read on, in either the public or the private way, do you think that there is some way that an unmarried person or an unpartnered person could make it through the system and be, like, approved to adopt or foster a child? Yeah, uh, if you if you don't factor in the cost, um, 100%. Yeah. There's, there's no reason why a, a non-attached single person would not be approved. Um, now the, the question would come in, there's two questions. So on the, on the public side, um, the question is going to be, well, how much can you handle as a single person? Because you have to be, sure. you've got to have that support system. So there's that on the private side, it's going to be, um, from the, from the birth mom's perspective, is this the kind of, you know, place I want to put my kid? Um, and so like in that, in that, in those documents, when we, we said, to our agency, here's what type of situations we are open to. And so when they would give us, you know, op- opportunities to look at, they're giving us stuff they think that we're going to be comfortable with. Um, but for instance, if they had a birth mom who was not okay, having their baby be adopted by, by two gay men, they wouldn't even give us that opportunity to look at. So right. there is kind of that criteria on the private side to make sure that it's a good match. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Wow, this has been already so informative. I know. I I'm like, like, how I did like, you even find no out all this, this stuff, right? Like, are there like, you know, forums for people who are like trying to adopt children that you can just go and like, you know, talk to people about what their experiences have been? Yeah, we did a lot of uh, web conversations. Um, I know I spent a lot of time on Reddit, just adoption boards. We have yeah, we have some friends who did the did the uh, you know the state uh, foster system, so we asked them questions. My niece. Um, is actually adopted through the foster system. Um, and so my sister understood kind of all of that. So I picked her brain a lot. You know, it, it's hard, it's confusing, it's stressful. Um, and so you, it, it's, it, I wish it weren't the, that way. Um, Cause I think that probably scares people. Um, yeah. Again, like it's this double-edged sword. You want to protect the kids, but you want to make it easier. Yeah. Yeah. Did you ever consider international adoption? We did. Um, the The challenge with international adoptions, aside from the cost, is that let's just use uh, I had a friend who adopted uh, from Guatemala years and years ago, so it might be better today. But um, typically, when the baby, if you're doing a, a newborn, right, the baby is born and you're typically there, but because of the way the system is set up, you can't bring that baby home until your receiving country says it's okay. 
So before that can happen, the sending country has to say it's okay to make sure that you didn't buy the baby on the black market kind of thing. So you could be stuck in limbo for weeks or months in a foreign country. And while we were able to spend the $60,000 all in over the course of three years, we weren't in a position to get stuck in a foreign country for weeks on end. Um, and so we just, that was a, 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 that was a question that we weren't comfortable yeah. <laughs> having out there. Yeah. Wait, also, if you doubt them internationally, like this whole custody system where you have to like, you know, take, is that like, a, is the kids still considered like a American citizen if you adopt them abroad? I think they would be eligible for dual citizenship because they did, they would, they would have been born in the other country. I think that's how that would work. Yeah. So I've heard, you know, <clears throat> I have, I have absolutely no idea how real like these worries are. I've heard the like international international adoption scandal of like yeah babies like maybe being like kidnapped or whatever and i don't know how real that is like i don't know if <laughs> do you have any idea I don't have any idea how real it is but i that was something we thought about too like how do we know that this a that this is a real you know organization they're not just stealing from us and b how do we know these are legitimate kids right that right. was absolutely something we thought about and i i didn't know how to answer that question Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it seems like, yeah, I mean, maybe the safe route is just to, like, adopt domestic. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not even, I mean, we have plenty of domestic kids that need adopting, yeah. too, right? Yeah. So. yeah. Okay, so so you did the whole thing, and now you're dads. You're dads. And, I mean, like, talk to us about, this might be a general question, but, like, the transition. I mean, you, you two were obviously prepping for this for years. Yeah. What was the actual, like, transition from you know, we're, we're a married couple, you know, in the adoption process to like actually receiving your child and, you know, being fathers. It's, it's exhausting and it's stressful and it's overwhelming. Um, though it's probably the best way to describe it. And I'm pretty sure every parent will say the same thing. Um, you know, I, I remember, so we were in, so she was born in Arizona. So we were in Arizona for 11 days while we waited for all the paperwork to clear. And those days were just a whirlwind because we were in someone else's home, um, which is just hard in general. You're a new parent. You're trying to figure out this new dynamic and you're not even in your own home. Um, so by the time we got home, um, then it started, we were able to start to get into a routine, but, but you're just, you're trying to figure it out. Like you have no idea what you're doing. You're in charge of a human life, which, oh my God, like that's a dog. <laughs> so it's, uh, she needs to be fed and change her diaper. And why are you crying? Um, and, uh, you, you know, it's, you had to figure it out and we still figure it out every day. Um, but, but that first year people joked beforehand and, and it's absolutely true. Um, it's all survival. It's, it's survival of your own relationship and, and keeping the kid alive. <laughs> um, I, yeah, it hadn't struck me that the, the initial 72-day period happened for you while you were in Arizona. Yeah. Yeah. Well, are you – wait, when you say you weren't at were – you, you weren't at the mom's house, right? You were just at like an Airbnb or something? Yeah, yeah Airbnb. Okay. And does the mom have any like connection remaining or do you like keep in touch with her or do you just like totally don't? So she, so she signed her rights contact. away, um, and then we actually had a lunch after that because um, she was going to leave the city. So she wanted to, we wanted to see her, and, and she wanted to see her daughter. So we had a lunch, 
Um, and that's the last time that she's, we have physically been in the same place. Um, but when you do private adoption, you can have it any number of ways. You can have it be open where you guys have phone numbers and addresses and you see each other once a year, three times a year, whatever the case may be. Um, you can have it semi-open or you can have it totally closed. Ours is probably what you'd call more of a semi-open where we provide updates through this online portal and she can log in and, and see them whenever she wants. But we don't have phone calls or FaceTimes or, or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what like for in terms of your like parenting dynamic, right? In terms of this like being in the survival mode, yeah. right? Like, do you have do you, like, you know, what is your kind of division of labor, you know? So that's an interesting question. Um, I don't know that we have a division of labor. And I say that because mm-hmm. so like when she was an infant, like one to five months, we both did bath time. Like it was two two hands on deck um, <laughs> to, to, <laughs> to handle that. But then I got to the point where like, well, we don't both need to be here. So let's just rotate every other night. So now that's the way we do it now. Like every other night, it's one of our job to do to to do the bedtime routine. Um, depending on what's on the dinner menu, one of us is, is in charge of that. The other one is in charge of just playtime and that kind of thing. Um, and other than that, it's just for us, it's, it's, if you need to go get on a work zoom call, then I'll move my schedule around and, and I'll take care of mm-hmm. her. So it's, um, for us, it's, it's a lot less about division of labor because, um, we both can cook. Um, we both can clean. We both can change diapers. Like it was never this you're in charge of this. And I'm going to, there's no like primary parent, secondary. No, parent not at all. Yeah. Um, and I think that was the way we always wanted it. Now I'm sure mm-hmm. as she gets older, that she'll gravitate to one of us for one thing and the other for another. And we'll deal with that as it comes. Um, like if she gets into, if she gets into music, that's not my thing. That's going to have to be my husband's thing. So yeah. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> But yeah, she's. Uh, we, we we've been very conscious about being co-parents and not one always doing something. Wow! And your like jobs allow that to happen, yeah. basically. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was gonna ask before the pandemic, did you two have to go in the office, or were you all were you both like, you were remote? Uh, we were both in the office. Yeah. So she was she was okay. going to daycare, um, which she loves. Like she absolutely loves her friends, um, and we love that she loves her friends. Um, that that was very important to us. She actually goes to a a place where they've got it in, in you know, it's Iowa. So it snows like 90% of the time. Um, not true. But <laughs> it feels like that sometimes. Um, but they've got an indoor gym. And so like they can throw balls around whenever they want, if it's raining outside. So that was super important to us that, that she have the physical activity and the, you know, interpersonal real, you know, activity as well. Mm-hmm. Um, talk a little about the way, that like having a child has affected your relationship with your husband? Like, have you, have you been able to have time that's just you two or like, what is that? You know, what, what does that, that look like? That's such a good question. I'm glad you asked it because, um, I don't know that many first time parents think about this. We were very, we'd had this conversation before she arrived that even after she gets here, we want to make sure that we stay us. And for us, that means doing, coffee dates, doing uh, dinner every once in a while, still going to concerts when we want to go. Now, COVID happened, so none of those things have remained on. <laughs> yeah. They'll yeah. come back. Um, but one thing, the challenge we did have is uh, your child becomes your life, and that's what should happen. But through that, we did lose our own relationship. Um, so about a year after she was born, we recognized that. Um, and we actually went to counseling as a couple just to kind of reset 
reset us. Um, and we both recognized that that had kind of happened. Um, we'd become roommates who were in charge of taking care of a, a you know, a baby. So um, through that recognition, we were able to, you know, find the problem, fix it and, and become a better family through it. So I don't know that many, many couples really think through what it's going to do to their, their relationship because you need your relationship changes to take care of a, a child, but you can't lose yourself because at the end of the day, this child's going to move away and you're going to be stuck with each other. So if you lose <laughs> yourself, then what's left at the end of it. And we, we knew that that was going to be important to us. So, um, yeah, it was rough. Like it's, it's hard. Um, but we, we, we knew going into it, what we wanted to achieve by the end. And so that kind of probably helped us more than, more than most. For sure. And even the process, like you said, of the interviewer coming and you're probably asking yeah. questions about this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I feel like Isabel and I have talked a lot on the show on like, you know, about like how important it is to keep your own identity when you're in a relationship. But like, this is a step further, right? Like this right. is like, I can like barely imagine anyone maintaining a <laughs> harmonious relationship after having a child. <laughs> but your relationship seems remarkably unfraught in that regard compared to like just the hetero parents I know. Right. And then, yeah. And you know, we've, we've actually tied that conversation. Um, and I think part of that is, and there, there's, there's no good way to say what I'm about to say. Um, <laughs> our daughter coming into our home was not an accident. Mm-hmm. you know yeah um, yeah you're, you're very for very planned um, and not like a, a the solution to a relationship problem right like right <laughs> and, and not every every hetero child sure. know, is that but it yeah. happens right yeah. um or you're trying and it and it happens and then okay well, we've got nine months to get ready we we had worked for three years to get to this point um and so i think that almost sets us up better for success um, there are still the moments where you just want to scream at your kid and walk out of the room. It happens. But, um, I think from, 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 a you know, a relationship standpoint, we were in a, in a better position to, to handle the change in the family. Um, so what is your, I mean, do you have a parenting philosophy? Do, is there, you know, what is, is there a, an overarching theme or are you kind of figuring out as you go? Well, we figured out as we go, um, you know, we, <laughs> At the end of the day, we want her to be her, whatever that is. Um, we, we want her to be able to express herself, to know that she's loved, to know that there's a whole world who that is around her that will support her and protect her. Um, I think what we're well, the, 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 the phase we're in right now is trying to encourage her to express her emotions. Now, that has not come out in the form of a public tantrum yet. It will. Um, <laughs> But at the same time, uh, when that does happen, how, and we've talked about it, how do you impress upon her that what you're feeling is real, whatever you're feeling, it's for a reason, but let's pause for a second and try and figure out what that is. So it's going to sound super cheesy to the audience, I'm sure. Uh, but there was this mom on TikTok recently who showed her kid, he was freaking out about something and she, she got his attention and they did three deep breaths. And the kid was calm after that. So the first, after watching that, the first time uh, our daughter had a freak out over something, I was like, I'm going to try this. So I did like got, you know, got in her face. So she, she would look at me and I said, let's take a deep breath. And we did three deep breaths together and she was calm. And I was like, can we hug? So we hugged 
And at, at, at that point, she was super calm. And I'm like, all right, what do you want? And it worked. And it still works to this day. So like just learning how do you communicate when they're just in this whole crazy, you know, emotive situation. Um, so we're learning as much as she is. But we just want to make sure that she understands what you're feeling is valid. We want to understand what it is and and use that to, to inform you know, your decision on how you respond to those feelings. So um, I feel like I, I totally lost track of where that where that question was, was driving at. But I think the philosophy for us is um, let her be her and we'll figure it out as we go. <laughs> Well, I mean, I think the thing that is so revolutionary about that is like compare that to like our generations. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so for, I really, really feel like there is such a profound generational difference yes. between the way our generation is parenting yes. compared to the way our parents' yeah. generation did and their parents' generation did. Like, it, I, it doesn't, it doesn't even feel like comparable. Yeah. So the other, the other thing that we. So we both grew up in religious families, different different religions, but very religious families. And we're both thankful we did. Like, we're so thankful for those experiences and those relationships that we built. But we, again, COVID aside, um, we don't go to a Sunday church. Um, we both still maintain a, a connection to our faith and what that means to us. Um, but we're not going to take our daughter to a Sunday church every, every, every week. Um, what we will do is when she's seven years old and she comes home and she's like, hey, my friend Josie goes to church on Sunday. Can I go with her? Yes, let's go. Like, if you want to do it, we will gladly encourage that and, and support you through that. Um, but we're not going to force things on her. Uh, we'll force food on her because we want her to experience all the wonders that food is. Uh, in terms <laughs> of like beliefs and like she's going to, her beliefs are going to be, we treat people with kindness we give love and we, we support people like that's, that's what we're going to teach her, um, which is very different yeah. than the way that a lot of our generation and every generation past was. was right. Yeah. I mean, the, the way that I've heard it framed from a just like theoretical perspective or like framework is that um, yeah, I'm a big fan of the Ezra Klein show and he's like a new dad. And so he has I had all of these parenting people on the podcast, whatever. And so <laughs> I'm kind of sick of hearing about it at this point because he's just like, that's all he talked about now. And I want to hear about politics anyway. So <laughs> he like had this woman, one woman on the show who is the author of this um, book called like the gardener and the carpenter or something. And it's like this notion of like, you know, do you consider parenting to be like your carpenter and you are literally like molding a child or are you like a gardener and you're just like you know giving these inputs and then kind of allowing your child yeah. to kind of grow into whatever you know what i mean like whatever they're gonna be yeah. right I think for us it's a gardening <laughs> approach yeah to, to give them the input give yeah. them the, the food the water the love and wherever mm -hmm. you grow you're gonna grow and we'll try and right. we'll trim yeah. up where we need to trim up <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> um have you thought about and this is i mean this is yeah I think kind of an amorphous question. Have you thought about how you will introduce your child to politics? Oh. <laughs> you know, it's so funny. So um, she, so she's actually, she actually went to the caucus um, in 2020. She was, she would have been a year old. Um, so she went, she was in her, her, her carrier the whole time um, and she fell asleep, but she was there. Um, so that's always, and she's gone to the voting booth with us Um be, and she obviously doesn't know yet, but she's going to know and understand this is what we do. This is this is our right. This is our privilege. This is our duty to, to play a role in the system. Um, so she'll know that from a very early age. 
And she's always going to know that her parents are passionate about the world that, that she lives in. Um, you know, having run for office twice, um, that's going to be something she and I talk about. I'm sure, I'm sure she'll ask me about it. Um, and unfortunately I didn't win the last, the last race I, I ran in. Um, maybe I'll run again one day and, and she'll see it firsthand, but, um, she mm-hmm. will know that, that her family is involved and, and her uncle on her, my husband, his half brother, um, is a U.S. Marine. So she's going to know that part of, of, um, of our family and our, and, and, you know, our role in the world. So, um, yeah, it's, she's going to know. <laughs> yeah. Do you, um, do you think that you'll, I mean, I, so I saw a TikTok today where, uh, someone was talking about, and I feel like people lie on TikTok, so this might not even be true, but, but, <laughs> but I saw a TikTok today of someone who's, they were like, you know, my parents would talk to me about politics. We talked, we had long talks about politics, but they never, ever told me what party they were, they were in and, and who they voted for. Is that like, is that something that you strive for? Or do you think you'll be open with like, yeah, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I think you said you're an, you're an independent. Yeah. Um, or will you like, were you like, yeah, I voted for X and X or yeah. How do you I think, think if she, that? if she, if she asked me, I'll probably tell her. And so we can have a discussion about why I, why I voted the way I did. Um, I've cast some interesting votes in my life, so, um, I'm sure she'll ask. And I, and I want her to be curious about what, you know, what it was like before she came to the world and what it was like when, you know, what was 2020 like that? Well, kid, let's sit down and have a conversation. <laughs> you know? um, it, I, I want her to be comfortable to ask the question. Um, and that's to the, to the earlier question. Like we want to have that open relationship with her um, where she feels comfortable to ask. Now we can always say that's a personal question. Um, you know, that's our right as Americans to vote how we want to vote. And, you know, I, I don't know. I really haven't really thought about it from that perspective. Um, what I, what I would hope is that um, we can talk about the issues of the day and how that impacts our family and, and our classmates and that kind of thing. Um, and then from there she can make her, her own informed decision. Do you feel, cause I, I feel like one thing that's been really cool, like the last, the last parenting episode we had was like a single mom from Little Rock, Arkansas, who talked a lot about like conscious parenting and like this, I mean, she was a black mom. So she talked a lot about like, you know, decolonization of like parenting and how so much of what we do is predicated on these like super, like, you know, patriarchal white supremacist and like, you know, just, just like authoritarian like notions of what parenting should be and like you have your own form of like you know the alternative parenting (laughs) in the sense that you're not this like you know whatever like it exactly what america envisions a family to be right and so i'm curious do you have like you know particular you know outside of like the adoption stuff just like you know fears or worries about like you know how as she grows older that's going to affect her life and like her ability to like be you know quote unquote like a normal kid or whatever you know yeah it's she it's not an easy a it's not an easy world to be born into today um so let's just let's just say that um she's 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 a woman so there's that um she's a white woman but um so, so we've thought about that. She's going to have two, two dads. So yeah, she's going to have to deal with that. Um, and we, we were, you know, there's, there's a, there's a part of us that's worried about what that means for her. Um, but the hope is that, you know, 10 years from now, well, it's always going to be a problem to somebody. Um, but the hope is that it's, it becomes fewer and fewer and less and less. And, um, I think what we know, um, is that hate 
is not something that is learned, it's taught. And so I think, um, especially our generation, I think we see less and less of that. Ideally, hopefully, I guess. Um, yeah. But yeah, like we think about that, what what she might have to you know, deal with in terms of um, her own discrimination or her own isolation based on her, her family. And, and that hurts to think about. Um, yeah. Yeah. Damn. I <laughs> like, cause my, my boyfriend has two moms um, and he had, he like is like knows his biological father and like they have a relationship. Um, and, but he grew up in Berkeley, California. Right. Yeah. So it was very much like, all his friends also had two moms. It was like not even weird, right? Yeah. Like Berkeley is literally just a community of les- like Jewish lesbians yeah. that's just like who all homeschooled together, you know? <laughs> so I don't know. Like Iowa seems like it could be a different story. Yeah, right? and we've, you know, we, we lived in New York for a time and um, one of the things we want to make sure she has and we still try and figure out how to make it happen, um, but we want to make sure she has a diverse circle around her. So diverse in terms of what do people do for a living, diverse in, t- in terms of skin color, diverse in terms of the, your religion. And yes, Iowa is not the bastion of complete diversity, but the, the block <laughs> that we live on is. I and mean, we've got um, a couple Indian families, um, a, a couple non-traditional families. So we're not, it's not just this block of white people, um, which is wonderful because we want her to have that diversity. My best friend is, and his family are Sri Lankan. Um, he married... A, a, a white Midwestern girl. So they're an interracial family. So she will see this. Um, so ideally, hopefully, um, that helps frame her worldview in the way that we think is the right, the right ideal way. First of all, thank you so much, Richard, for sitting down yeah. with us. I I feel like this conversation ended up being a lot more relevant. So, like, even my life than I thought it was going to be because I'm thinking about adopting. And I just, like, never really gotten the opportunity to, to talk to someone that's gone through that process. Um, so, the concluding question we've been asking everyone, now that we're in late-stage pandemic, hopefully, fingers yeah. crossed, what do you, yeah, what are you most excited to do or what's something that you're really excited to get out and do when you can? Uh, I'm going to say two things. Um, one is just me and my husband um, take a trip together, um, which we haven't been able to do, obviously. So um, that'll be that'll be something we do at some point, hopefully late this year. And then just as a family um, of us three doing things with, with friends and not having to worry um, that someone's going to get sick or someone is sick, um, having her be herself and be a two-year-old will be wonderful. Yeah. And I mean, if it's, it's close, we're kind of almost Getting close. Okay. Richard, if, if there is anything you want to plug, I don't know if you have any media or whatever, you can do it now. Yeah. If people are interested, uh, I'm a super open book about, about really every topic. Um, but obviously we talked about adoption and parenting and a little bit of politics there at the end. Um, so you can, you can find me on Twitter. I'm super active on Twitter, which is just my first name, last name, Richard Dedor which is also my website, richarddito.com, and you can see all the wonderful stuff I, I take on over there as well. Great. And as always, you can find us at I'm the Villain Pod. That's our Twitter, that's our Gmail, and also our Instagram. Otherwise, bye, everyone. <laughs>